Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us, but to your name. Be glory because of your love and your faithfulness. I think I was in my early 20s when I first saw that verse. And uh, um, a composer named MacDonald has put it in song for us. And we've inscribed it on the stones of the Hope Fountain out there. But God has written it on our hearts, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. I'm so grateful for this great day. We've been looking forward to it for a long time. I am thankful uh, to my fellow pastors uh, who uh, share this platform with us. We wish Daniel could be with us. Um, uh, We are grateful for Russell and Lester. We had a marvelous time together on Friday night and they shared memories of all that God had done. And if you could hear, I wish somehow we had captured that. I hope we did. Because if you could hear how Tallowood began, then you would understand that he who began a good work in us is continuing that work even to this day. So happy birthday, Tallowood, born in 19... 62, that was a great year. Tim Gilmore reminded me over supper on Wednesday night, you and Tallowood are the same age. Thank you, Tim, for reminding me of that. So 1962 was a great year for my part. I appreciate at Bucky's and other fine service stations, you can find books that describe uh, what happened in 1962. JFK was president The Beatles released the song, Love Me Do. The Oscar for Best Movie went to Lawrence of Arabia. Should have gone to, To Kill a Mockingbird, but I was too young to vote. The Grammy for Best Record, Tony Bennett's I Left My Heart in San Francisco. Gasoline cost 28 cents a gallon. The average home, $12,500. The average income, $5,000. Five hundred and fifty-six dollars a year. Tuition to Harvard was one thousand five hundred and twenty dollars. Well, those were good days, <laughs> but there were challenges. Just uh, twelve days before uh, Tallowood began uh, officially as a church, uh, Kennedy declared an embargo of Cuba, leading to the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was going on at that time, wasn't it? And. And later that year, Marilyn Monroe would pass away. And that was 50 years ago. Do you remember when you thought 50 years, some of you may still think 50 years old is very old. (laughs) I, I suppose every teenager has had this thought. I'll just confess it. If you were 50, why would you want to go on living? I never think that way anymore. By the time you're 50, you're grateful for everything that has happened. You've learned a lot of lessons and you want to use the rest of your years well. So how do we do that as a church? We have this marvelous history and heritage of hospitality. And I wonder how we capture and continue that tradition in a city that is admittedly different than it was 50 years ago. It was just about three years ago that Melanie and I took a boat ride. It was a cold and snowy day, and we rowed across a harbor. We had just received news just days earlier that um, our daughter, Casey, who was just my cousin Casey back then, 
that her mother had passed away and that she had been left in a children's home. And we were on our cell phones trying to contact family members to ask the possibility if we might have permission to bring her into our home. And, and as Melanie and I rode across that uh, cold water, we bundled up and shivered and we drank hot chocolate with whipped cream mustaches. And, and when we arrived, we saw that magnificent statue there, which has welcomed so many into America's harbor. Went over to Ellis Island And at the statue, we we saw that inscription which has inspired so many. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. I'll leave it to the politicians to debate immigration policy. I suppose every country has to have its own immigration policies. You'll understand me when I say my greater interest is in salvation policy. It was the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament and a servant named Philip in the New who maybe more than anybody else understood what God was thinking when he created the world, when he sent his only son to redeem all the nations. Would you open your Bibles with me this morning? I want to read to you from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. While you're turning there, would you stand with me as we read? I just want to read a single verse to you from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 6. Where Isaiah says that God says to the exiles returning to Israel, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts chapter 8, verse 26, Luke writes, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So, He started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice 
Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or, or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You may be seated. God always intended to love the whole earth. Not everybody who followed God understood that. There are stories and chronicles in the Old Testament that reveal that that there was limited understanding of God's greater purpose. We might say Israel missed that idea of being a light to the nations, but the prophet Isaiah got it. He understood. And he said to those who would come back as exiles, this is what God says, the God who's bringing you back. If you think it's enough just to bring back the ones who used to be here in Israel, you misunderstand you minimize my mission because my goal is that you would be a light to all the nations. Then just a few chapters over, he tells God's plan for that about the Messiah who will come and be a suffering servant and who will be cut off and that, that his uh, stripes will heal us and that he will be wounded for our transgressions and then just a few chapters after that in chapter 56 Isaiah begins to dream about what a new temple would be like where foreigners would come in and give glory to the only true God and even the eunuchs who in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, we are told are not allowed to enter into the place of worship because of their physical deformity. They are not allowed in. And, and can you imagine Isaiah saying, and the eunuch will come in all the way in and will worship God with all the gathered people of God. I don't know how much of that this Ethiopian official, treasurer, chancellor of the exchequer, one of our British friends said for, for the queen of Ethiopia. I don't know how much of that he knew. But Philip knew when he was thrust out of Jerusalem, forced out by the persecution that took his fellow deacon Stephen's 
life. Philip knew that that there was a bigger picture, so he landed in Samaria and started talking about Jesus, and revival broke out. It was concerning to the church in, in Jerusalem, and so Peter and John were sent just to make sure that this was really God at work among the Samaritans. I, I guess the story about Jesus with the woman at the well was not enough for them to understand how much God loves all people. So Peter and John came to confirm it. And, and just when the revival fires were getting hot, just when, when thousands were giving their lives to Christ, God tapped Philip on the shoulder and said, I have a divine appointment for you to keep. I need you to go out to the desert, to a lonely, isolated road. And on that road, he found a lonely, isolated man who had come up to Israel to worship. And we may assume that this man who had come 1,500 miles in search of the love of God, when he came to the temple itself, stood on the outside looking in because he was not allowed to enter. Maybe that's why on his way home, he opened up the scroll of Isaiah. I mean, after all, before before there were Kindles and Nooks and iPads, there were these things called books. And before there were books, there were scrolls of parchment. And on one of those scrolls, didn't he open the right scroll Led by God, he opens up Isaiah, and maybe he has already read, it's too small a thing for you. And when he comes to Isaiah 53, he's perplexed because he reads about a man who has been dealt injustice and who will never have any descendants on the earth. And the eunuch must have wondered, who is this man? And right on time, Philip came running up and joined himself, it says, to that chariot. And there he explained to him the good news about Jesus. And the Ethiopian was baptized and Philip was swept away. If you've ever been on the outside looking in, you know how painful that can be. I wonder how many of you have lived outside the country of the United States. I'm curious. Would you raise your hands? Some of you were expats with an oil business. I'm sure others of you were missionaries. And I grew up for eight years in Germany, eight years of my childhood. The people there, Gisela in our church, was very kind to me. But I know what it's like, and maybe you know what it's like, or maybe it's a a clique that you just can't work your way into school or work. But if you've ever been on the outside looking in, you, you never want that to happen to you again. But I wonder if God might expand our hearts a bit today that we might see that just as we would never want that to happen to us, we would never want that to happen to anybody else. Western hospitality, Mark Buchanan says, is when you invite friends over for a couple of hours. Biblical hospitality is when you, when you 
compel the stranger to stay one more day in your home. But divine hospitality is when you seek out your enemies and you at great personal cost transform them into your sons and daughters and invite them to dwell in the house of the Lord and to banquet at the table forever. There's a difference in our idea of hospitality and God's idea of hospitality. And I'm praying that God will teach us his as we look forward to all the decades to come. See first in this text that God sees and loves the stranger in our gates, that God sees the outsider, that God loves the outsider, and God wants us to see the outsider. It's it's why, for heaven's sake, that Philip was on that road. I suppose those who've been rejected have a greater heart for others who've been rejected, but he had been unceremoniously dismissed from Jerusalem and he found himself in Samaria and then found himself on this desert road and there he encounters a man who is desperately looking for God. A man who's on the outside looking in, by the way, not because he's an Ethiopian. An Ethiopia, it turns out, in ancient uh, history is not exactly corresponding to the modern nation of Ethiopia. In fact, this Ethiopia was located in what we would call Sudan. We have a Sudanese church at Tallowood and now the new nation of southern Sudan. It's in that area of the world where he lived and worked. But he had come so far looking for God and God saw him on that road and surely set an appointment for Philip on that road. And Philip, Philip, who was a sort of one-man great commission, who goes and teaches and baptizes, who understood that Jesus in his last opportunities with his disciples had said, I want you to make disciples of all nations as you go, baptizing and teaching. And he was surely in that company when Jesus said, after the Holy Spirit comes upon, the disciples were asking, is this the time when you restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts chapter 1 verse 6. And Jesus says, not for you to know, literally, not for you to know, But um, you stay here in Jerusalem until you receive power. And after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And apparently Philip was listening when Jesus said that. So when he was forced out of Jerusalem and for his own safety out of that area, he stops first in Samaria and begins to tell the people there about Jesus. And then wherever Philip went, he was telling somebody about Jesus. So when he was supposed to go to this desert road and he looks and he sees the man, God didn't tell him there's a man there I want you to talk with, but Philip assumed and he acted on that assumption and he found that man. And I was thinking about Tallowood's history of hospitality, Peggy Boyd, who in the early days of this church, happened to be the welcome wagon woman in this area. And she would uh, go door to door welcoming people, people from all over the country. She said, mostly from the north. She said, you could tell when I asked them, so what church did you go to? And the people from the north looked at her with a strange expression as if to say, what does that have to do with me? 
being welcomed to Houston. And she said, I would tell them about Tallowood. She would tell them about Tallowood as they moved. And it was a great advantage for Tallowood to have her as the welcome wagon woman. And I was thinking how, how Houston has changed. Just, uh, just under a million people in 1960. Now in the greater Houston area, almost six million people, people from over 200 different nations have come to this city. They have come here to us. And God has a heart for every one of them. I saw it when this choir loft was filled last Sunday night. Some of you were here when this choir loft was filled with the the youth choirs from all of our different congregations. We have a, a Chinese congregation, an Hispanic congregation. These are language congregations, uh, Sudanese and 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 Burmese, and most recently Arabic and uh, and Russian and. All of these congregations all up there. This whole area over here was filled with the Burmese. We didn't reserve it for them. It's just when you've grown from 30 to 350 in five years, you take up a lot of space when you gather with the mother church. And as we worshiped together that night and had the Lord's Supper together and all those pastors gathered here, I thought, God brought Tallowood here for such a time as this. Mark Buchanan was in um, Brooklyn Tabernacle one day fellowshipping with Jim Cimbala and Jim Cimbala said to him, you know what the greatest sin in the United States of America is? And Mark said, no, tell me. And he said, it's that pastors are not on their knees crying out to God saying, God, send us the drug addicts and the prostitutes and the people with AIDS. God, send us the people that nobody else wants, whom only you can heal so that we can tell them about Jesus so that they can become your followers. He said that's the greatest sin in America. A couple times in recent weeks in our benediction, I've prayed and said, God, send us the people that nobody else wants. And my friends have met me at the back every time I've said it. And they've said, do you really mean that? Really, Dwayne? Seriously? Typically then they'll say something like, I'm in. (laughs) I'm in. But do you know how that would change our church? If God sent us the people that nobody else wanted, I just want to say to you that the people that nobody else wants, God wants. God wanted this man that even Deuteronomy had said couldn't enter. Look, his issue with entering the temple was not that he was Ethiopian. His issue was that he was a eunuch. But that barrier was not so great that the love of Jesus Christ could not cross God sees the outsider. And God, will you receive this? God sends us to the outsider. It's the lazy church that says, we'll just wait here and see who shows up. But Tallowood started 50 years ago going and telling. Jesus said, as you go, make disciples. And Philip took that seriously. He was on his way down a desert road, but there was a man there who needed to become a disciple. And the good news is when we're doing what God wants us to do, God says, I will be with you to the ends of the earth, to the end of the age, if you will do what I've called you to do. My power is there for my purpose. 
And my purpose is that all people will come to me. And Philip understood that when he joined himself to that chariot, when he sat down, when he began to explain. And this is what he explained to him as he went to him. This is what he explained. He told him the good news about Jesus. The gospel is not a good idea or good advice or good instructions. It is the announcement of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And 50 years ago and today, the only thing Tallowood has to offer to this city is Jesus. It has always been all we've ever had. He has always been all we've ever had and he will always be all we really have to offer because only Jesus can save those who are on the outside looking in. And it will help us to capture this vision if we understand that we were never really on the inside looking out. It was when we were Romans 5, when we were still sinners, while we were helpless, while we were powerless, while we were enemies, literally haters of God, that God sent forth His Son and commended His love toward us so that we might become His children. If you've ever been on the outside, you don't want anybody to stay on the outside. He teaches him about Jesus. Make no mistake, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there is no other. All the armies that ever marched and all the navies that ever sailed and all the parliaments that ever ruled and all the kings who ever reigned on thrones put together have not affected the life of humankind as much as that one man, Jesus, who is the Christ. And somebody else might have said, let's talk about justice and injustice and all that you've been through um, to this Ethiopian eunuch. But, but Philip told him, about Jesus. A new friend of mine who did his doctorate over in Scotland went to a church there that only ever talked about social justice and he spoke to his Catholic priest supervisor and he said, the Catholic priest asked him how his church and he said all they talk about is justice and his, his supervisor of his dissertation said, ah laddie, there is no justice without Jesus. And this man found the one he was looking for. He couldn't enter the temple, but God came to him and the Spirit of God made him into the temple of the Holy Spirit on that desert road. No wonder he went on his way rejoicing. No wonder he said, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And it says they went down into the water. And when he came up out of the water, it sounds a lot like immersion, doesn't it? Going down in and coming out. And, and I love that that picture, I think about my friend Stephen Hatfield's father who was a pastor in Arkansas, a diminutive man, a small man, and the largest man in the city became a Christian one Sunday morning. Several times Mr. Hatfield's weight and height and so they, they came that night. He said, we're going to baptize him tonight and the whole city came to see the little pastor baptize this mountain of a man at six o'clock the um, curtains began to part and the curtains were there and here standing in the shadow of this giant was this tiny pastor and he baptized him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and he took him down into the water 
and brought him all the way back out and the audience sat there stunned in silence and the curtains began to close. And then interrupting the silence, Pastor Hatfield opened the curtains and said, you didn't think I could do it, did you? (laughs) We are unapologetically Baptist. It is who we have been. It is who we will be. It is in our name. It is in our DNA. We are Christian first, but of the Baptist tradition and all that that speaks to, soul competency and freedom of religion and and all the things that we have stood for through the years, we still believe. And I wonder what it would be like if we captured this vision of being a church in this city for all the nations. Surely we would become, as Jesus envisioned, a house of prayer for all the nations where not only we pray regularly when we meet for the nations, but where the nations come together to pray. Maybe that's why Jesus uh, cleared the temple because they were in that court of the Gentiles and keeping the people even farther away from God who most needed God. Surely we would um, be a church that sends out missionaries to the nations in these years. We've had the privilege of of seeing uh, the roses go uh, down to South America, to Peru. We've seen the the Walkers and the Wittenbergs go to Europe and, and most recently the Bertrands and the Lusks and the Easleys all headed to the um, Muslim people uh, group in Asia there in one of the countries in Asia and I just wondered who's who's next who's on deck who will be the next family that we send as missionaries to the nations but it's bigger than that the nations have come to us and I wonder if we will be a church that welcomes the nations into our congregation we now have in the mother congregation people from over 25 different countries speaking some 15 different languages in our Russian congregation alone there are 10 nations represented we we want to reach the nations right here in our city with language congregations for first generation um, people but but with the mother congregation for every other generation of people who speak English this is our mission some years ago I sat at a supper up in Waco with one of my heroes James Vardaman he had been my history professor when I was a history major at Baylor and And we talked the whole night. His wife finally interrupted us and said, you two have not said a word to anybody else in the room. But you understand, I've been waiting for some years to have this conversation. And I had much to say. And there was so much I wanted to hear from this man who loved all things British. But the best story he told me all night, he saved for the end. He said, when I was a boy, I grew up in the outskirts of Dallas. My mother loved First Baptist Church. We would go to that church she said she, he said she loved George W. Truett, the pastor of the church. She named my oldest brother, he said, George Truett Vardaman. She loved Dr. Truett. And we would go every Wednesday night. We would walk five miles. Sounds like a story my father used to tell me about going to school in the snow uphill. But five miles we would walk in the heat of Dallas, no air conditioning. We would walk to the church. And on Wednesday nights we would wait for the people to finish the meal. 
because my family couldn't afford to pay for the supper and we didn't have any food to bring with us. And so we would stand in the shadows and wait for the meal to finish and then we would go in and enter into the programs and ministries of the church. But one night, my brother Jerry came to me and said, come with me, we're going to the table. And I said to my brother Jerry, how do we get to eat at the table? And he said, because the pastor saw us standing in the shadows and he wants us to eat at the table. And you may debate when George W. Truett was at his best. Was it when he gave that marvelous speech about religious freedom on the steps of the Capitol in Washington, D.C.? Was it when he started a a hospital that's become now a a hospital system in, in Dallas? Was that when he was at his best? But you'd have a hard time convincing the Vardamans that Truett was ever better than that night when he saw the children standing in the shadows and invited them to the table. Here's the gospel. We were all standing in the shadows. And God saw us and invited us to the table. And people like us who've ever been beggars looking for bread know enough to know that we ought to find other beggars who are looking for bread and bring them to the table. God, give us the people that nobody else wants, whom only you can save so that we can tell them about Jesus and you can make them whole. May God do that in this people for all the years to come until Jesus returns. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this privilege of worship. Thank you for loving us as you do. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we have failed to fully understand the riches of your love. But tonight, Lord, I pray that you would give us, today, that you would give us a vision of your love and your mercy that we would never forget and that we would find grace And we would become gracious, grace-filled people, giving grace to others. In Jesus' name, amen.